This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done in the workplace or that they have said and done in the workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I'm Ed Everts, and I'm the founder of Excellius Leadership Development. I'd like to say something that I will never say again, and I mean never. Welcome to the first broadcast of Be Brave at Work. This is a program designed for individuals just like you to share stories just like yours and provide you ideas and solutions on how to take the next step. So often, it is the absence of thinking about the next step that precludes people from moving forward. You know, oftentimes the problem as a whole is so big, a lot of folks don't take the next step. They don't move forward. Yet, if you can take the first step in order to make progress, you're on your way to solving your challenge. I worked in corporate America for 26 years, and I've been a leadership coach for 11 years. In each of these situations, I have repeatedly met people who have something to say, yet have not said it, or need to do something, yet have not done it. In our podcast, we'll be chatting with folks just like you about their experiences in avoiding being brave or taking the next step, requiring a number of behaviors, one of them being bravery. These will be true experiences and their reasons for taking or not taking the next step are numerous. Why have they not taken the next step? What is holding them back? Or why did they do something brave and say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done? What gave them the courage to say or do it? I use the word bravery purposefully, as this is often how folks think about or reflect on their current situation. You may be thinking or saying things to yourself like, I should have said something, yet I was nervous, or I didn't have the guts to say something, or I would have done it, yet everyone would have hated it. All of these experiences can be successfully navigated by connecting with colleagues. That is what we will be doing in our podcast. That's our goal. So let me welcome our first guest. Harry Ebbinghausen is the retired former president of North America of Iron Mountain, and in an effort to keep himself mentally active and in an effort to give back to the community, he's chairman of the board of trustees of Crystal Way High School, located in beautiful Dorchester, Massachusetts. Hello, Harry. Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. And I said I wouldn't say it again, but I will say it again on our first broadcast of Be Brave at Work. So as the axiom goes, never say never. Never say uh, never. Thank you for the opportunity for me to share my story with you. So Harry, just to jump in, oftentimes when we talk about being brave at work, different people have different definitions. And you know, I'd love for you to reflect for a few minutes on, you know, when you think of being brave at work or demonstrating bravery in the workplace, you know, what phrases or words or perspectives do you have about bravery in the workplace? Well, I think it's You know, those times when you are reaching a point, whether it be a decision or an action that you need to take, you know, this is where your stomach starts churning. And I guess what the biggest, you're dealing with a couple of of emotions. One is fear, fear of failure, fear of not making the right decision, or fear, as you had mentioned, of offending individuals, particularly it may be individuals that, you know, you have close working relationships with. It's the kind of issues that keep you awake at night where you're tossing and turning and you're just not getting a good night's sleep because it's pushing you out of a comfort zone that you're currently in. And there are unknowns in terms of what the outcome is going to be. 
So I think that's, to me, that's where the bravery, if you want to define bravery, it's, it's having the internal fortitude to step out and step forward in spite of continuing on with what's comfortable or status quo. Yeah. And when you think about something like fear, and we've heard that infamous question that people get at press conferences, you know, quote unquote, what keeps you up at night? What are some first steps someone could take if they are starting to feel nervous or their stomach is tightening around a particular topic? There's a lot of different techniques that you can do to deal with stress at different levels. One is putting your thoughts down on paper or putting the scenarios down on paper and what the potential outcomes are. And at least it will give you a sense for if something does go sideways, you know, what are your recovery plans or how are you going to address if that's the outcome? The second, and I believe most of us probably have a mentor or two whom we would be able to confide in, you know, the issue that we're discussing with. In some cases, it may be, a, you know, a spouse or, you know, a family member. In other cases, it may be a, your boss or a prior supervisor, someone who you have a great deal of respect for their business acumen and management capabilities, who you could bounce the ideas off of, you know, kind of get their input to see if what you're doing is logical and makes sense. The other is I always found from a physical perspective, just to burn off the adrenaline, making sure that you're maintaining a good regimen with respect to, you know, working out where you can at least, as I said, burn off some of that energy and anxiety. I always found that to be helpful as well. Yeah. So I love those, Harry. Let me just go back because I think those are important to reflect on. I often tell clients that the ideas that they have in their heads don't always come out the way that they hope. And so putting it on paper and getting it out of your head and you could do a plus minus exercise. You can do, like you said, the outcomes and what are the various outcomes that might come out. But oftentimes getting it out of your head and getting it on paper can help reduce some of that churn in your stomach and help you look at it a little bit more logically. So I love that idea on how to be braver and make good progress. The second I truly love, which is a mentor, and I use the term accountability partner, but you know, a mentor, somebody who you could confidentially share what you're experiencing because you may not have thought about it completely. There may be other options that you haven't considered, but somebody who you respect, and it, it could be a spouse or it could be a former supervisor. You need to let them know that what you want to share with them is confidential, but you know, here's what I'm dealing with. Here are some of the outcomes if I've written it on paper. You know, what are your thoughts? What are some things that you think that I could do to make greater progress? And then, of course, the third, you know, burning off that adrenaline, right? Uh, you know, either working out or just sometimes people say, hey, I've got to go for a walk, right? And they go for a walk and that exercise of fresh air, you know, the sun hitting your body, et cetera, can help you think a little bit better about what it is that you're experiencing. And I would imagine, Harry, that you've done one or more or all of these and many of the challenges and problems that you have faced in your career. Yes. And, you know, there is a fourth one, but I don't recommend it as it typically doesn't do well. And that is, you know, spending time with your friends, Jim, Jack or Johnny <laughs> and trying to figure it out. So that one doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so we won't, we won't recommend uh, number four to our listeners. There you go. So, Harry, you have a story that you'd love to tell as a demonstration of bravery in the workplace. And let's get to it. Let's hear your story. Probably one of the scariest or toughest decisions that I recollect that I have had to make goes back to when I had responsibility for a division within Iron Mountain. And having come through a series of multiple acquisitions, 
2018 to be exact, we now had to rationalize the business. And by rationalizing the business, what I mean is we had to, we had to standardize on our service offerings and our internal operating processes to better serve our customers. As you can well imagine, with 18 different companies, everybody was doing things, well, similar in some ways, different in others. And we needed to have that consistency. And these were 18 companies across the country. Correct. Right, geographically, different cultures, different economies, different locations, et cetera. Different billing methodologies, different technology platforms, et cetera. So the goal would be to improve basically three things, enhance the customer experience, standardize on internal operating and billing procedures, and of course, driving out the operational inefficiencies and costs you know, that naturally would be inherent in, in just operating in different ways across the country. So during the period of acquisitions that we went through, we were fortunate enough to hire the number one and number two companies in space. And when I say the number one and number two companies, they were significantly larger than we, our division was at RML. And the business that we were in was we stored the backup tapes, the computer backup tapes for companies that held their data or their information. Now I'm gonna date myself, but going back in the days of old, uh, when companies would have a hardware or a software failure, they would use the tapes to restore the information back to a point in time, right, where they knew that the data was good. And the number one company that we had acquired that was in this space had a very strong brand and a very large footprint in terms of number of locations. They had excellent customer relationships and they had a you know pretty well engineered sales and marketing engine, a very good, strong sales team and and going out and uh, attracting new business. The number two company that was in this space was about half the size of the number one company, but was very well engineered operationally, very strong technology platforms. They had very well-defined systems and processes to manage the customer's inventory, which would provide benefits like audit trails and information and reporting. Uh, They also had standardized on their operations and facilities, meaning every facility was almost identical, kind of like a McDonald's approach, if you will, where, you know, you go in, they all look the same. And Harry, how close were these acquisitions to each other? Were these within? Within a three-year period, we acquired the 18 companies. Okay. All right. So it was a fairly tight time frame. Yeah. The number one and number two acquisitions came within a year of each other. Okay. So that's a very tight time frame. Right. And the third was the other item that this well-engineered company had was a system to manage labor, meaning productivity metrics, performance metrics, to make sure that they were optimizing their workforce and driving you know, great efficiencies. You know, while both of them were very strong in their own respect and, and what they did in very good and reputable organizations, there was a wide disparity between the two. To give an example, take you back to you know, at the turn of the century, when we went from 1999 to 2000, it was what was known as the Y2K initiative. I'm sorry, what is that Y2K? Standing for the year 2000. And this was where there was a, a genuine fear, the way the code was written in computing systems, that a lot of the computing programs would, abs- would come to a screeching halt because the computers wouldn't recognize 
when the 999 came up in 1999 to switch over to 2000, everything would would stop. So there was a huge effort that went on for, you know, starting in like 1998, building up to 2000, where IT departments were going through their various code and their logic and making sure that there wouldn't be a failure. And this was worldwide, by the way, this whole thing. They were afraid about government shutting down, transportation systems shutting down, the airlines shutting down. I mean, you name it. Anything that was running on a computer-based system, you know, had this concern. So naturally, companies would inquire, make inquiries to their suppliers, their vendors. What were they doing with respect to this Y2K issue? And they wanted to make sure that if they were dependent upon this company for a mission-critical function, that their vendor or their supplier wasn't going to be, they themselves would be operating, but their vendor or their supplier would fail. So it was not uncommon for them, their IT departments, to be asking their suppliers, you know, what's your Y2K plans? This one company, you know, who was uh, very good with customers and, you know, good marketing and sales organization, and great relationships. Well, the company that was very good technology-wise with their platforms, of course, had everything well-documented and could sit in front of the client and address their questions with respect to specific project plans and Gantt charts and what they had done, et cetera. The other company who had the good relationships and had a flair for the marketing side was their response was, well, we'll just switch from number two lead pencils to number three lead pencils, and we'll just switch from yellow legal pads to white legal pads. Yeah, not a great answer. Yeah. And, you know, but as funny as that was, and oftentimes they'd get the chuckle, the sad part was there was an element of truth to their explanation. They literally ran things with a lot of manual tracking processes of keeping track with clients' inventory, et cetera. There wasn't a lot of sophistication to their back office operations. So that gives you an idea of of the disparity between the two organizations. So in the marketplace that we served, we provided a critical, mission-critical service to helping these companies recover when their data centers would go down in the event of something that could be man-made or a natural disaster. So a fire, a flood, a tornado, a hurricane, an electrical outage a bug in the software, you know, an employee accidentally wiped out the information. So it was a very mission critical application. And unlike how the technology works today through advances, things like system redundancy and data replication, these companies would literally ship their tapes from our location to their recovery sites. And they were called hot sites. And these would be located across the country in places like New York, Chicago, Denver, Phoenix, Dallas. And there were companies like IBM, SunGuard, and Comdisco who provided these hot site services. So these companies would, you know, if they lost their data center, they would send their employees or IT staff off to these hot sites and they would have us ship those tapes to those hot sites so they could rebuild their computing environments. So thinking about the logistics and how that all works, you can well imagine what it would be like if one of our recently acquired companies serving a customer, let's say in Boston, has a disaster and ships, wants to ship tapes out to Chicago. And the other company that we acquired in Chicago is now going to manage or deliver on that with with a whole different processes or whole different systems and 
the billing information and activities that you would have for providing that service are not matching up between the two locations. Yeah, you could see where it just was fraught with creating a challenge and the customers would not be getting the same experience. So the analogy would be, it would be the equivalent of walking into a McDonald's, ordering a Big Mac and the look and the taste and the packaging and everything of the Big Mac in one location didn't match another. Not exactly leading to the best customer experience. Right. And of course, that would be what their expectation levels were. So that was the goal, right? How do we get to standardized operating procedures so that our customers, it would be seamless to them, regardless of where they were dealing with us, whether it was Boston or Boise or Bismarck, it was the same when they were dealing with Iron Mountain in terms of the services that we were providing. That was what was the need for the standardization and what we had to get to. Obviously, more logically, right, as a result of these of these major acquisitions, there were a lot of key senior level positions that were held by the leaders of these two companies, meaning you know, the folks who had responsibility for the operations, the folks who had the responsibility for the sales and marketing, folks who had responsibility for IT. A lot of them we picked the we thought at the time the best athletes and had them running those organizations. And naturally, all of them were very proud of the companies that they had come from and built and felt strongly about their way of doing things was the best or their way of doing things was the right way to be doing things. As a matter of fact, it would become kind of a joke in our senior staff meetings, and they would do this, you know, half tongue in cheek, but they'd get into these debates about and this bantering would start about who was the better company. Right, back and forth. So, and it, it was all done in good good faith. But there was some there was some emotion, right, to what uh, people were proud of and wanted to hold on to what they had. So the challenge that we faced was in developing a new way that we were going to come to the market in regards to our service offerings, our billing methodologies, our facility standards, our customer asset tracking and management systems, our employee management system, and and our culture. The ask that I gave to these individuals is that let's not pick one or the other. Let's develop the best way and come to market with something that nobody else could compete with and would give us significant depreciation, uh, not depreciation, but differentiation in terms of, of our service offerings. So that was my task or ask of this leadership team to do that. So we're about 12 months into this integration process, and I'm realizing that uh, we're not making a lot of progress, and there's a lot of you know debate that's going on. We had gone off-site for a quarterly leadership meeting, and when the team came back to present to me what this new opportunity or what this new org, if you want to call it, or new way of going to market was going to look like, they had labeled it the grid of pain. <laughs> So that gives us insight into how they were approaching the matter, right? So it was it was more about here's all the problems and challenges and the things that are going to you know we're going to have to deal with. You know, to me as the senior leader, I was sitting there going, "Okay, this is a major red flag." There was too much infighting and bureaucracy going on. There was too many people trying to protect their turf or their old way of doing things. Our customers were suffering and, you know, we were going nowhere fast. So I returned from this senior meeting and I had the, the realization, the epiphany that 
I'm going to have to make some changes here at a senior leadership level. I'm going to have to restructure this team because it's they're not collaborating and they're not working. And certain folks, they may have thought they were being forward thinking they weren't helping to advance the ball. And in some cases, this meant moving people out of their current roles and either into less influential roles, or in some cases, even out of the organization. We're going to pause the conversation we're having with Harry Ebikhausen and ask you to join us next week as we hear more about the actions Harry needed to take to help his organization ensure the path forward was the best path possible. Thank you so much for joining us on Big Brave at Work and have a great week.